as Pastor Eric said, we are launching Mark. So if you want to get your Bible out, turn there. Turn your Bible on if that's your thing. Follow along with us. Begin this new series in Mark, and it's going to be fun. I'm excited for that. I hope you are. Um, we try to spend time in the Gospels, at least you know, for large portions of our year. Um, and so Mark, if you're not familiar with it, Hopefully you will be this by the end of the spring. It's punchy. It's action packed. It's you know just notice when you read the book of Mark how many times Mark uses the word immediately. He loves that word. It's just Jesus on the move. It's the next thing after the next thing. He gets right after it. So we're going to take a rather speedy exploration of the book of Mark, but we're going to try to get through the whole thing and all the way up to Easter. And so we'll celebrate Resurrection Sunday in the book of Mark. And so you got 16 weeks, essentially, of simply looking at Jesus. That's what we're doing. Starting today, it's like, wait, I thought we preached Jesus every week. Yes, but like sometimes we just go deep, dive in, where just all of the stories are gonna be on Jesus. And so 16 weeks of exploring Jesus, looking at Jesus, what's he like? What did he do? And then this means also at the same time, we're spending 16 weeks learning a great deal about us, and like how we relate to him and what is actually being expected of us and how, what does it mean to follow and be a disciple of Jesus? And so that's what we're gonna do. So uh, ready for chapter one? Yes? So uh, we're gonna be, begin just looking right at Jesus's ministry. Mark, you'll notice if you're familiar with Matthew or if you're from you know, Luke or things like that, he's very different. Mark's very different. He, he doesn't spend any time dealing with Jesus's credentials, uh, getting into the business of showing that he is a descendant of the David and all of that, like Matthew is concerned with that. Mark's not concerned with any of that. He just want, jumps right in and he wants to get right after it and say he's the divinely appointed son of God and here's how he went about saving the world. And so um, here we go, Mark 1. And we're going to read to verse 15, and there's plenty of here to explore. <laughs> and I, I won't even get to maybe a fraction of it this morning. Um, Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I, I, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, there's that word, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. 
sometimes in life you encounter, you've done this before, you've, you encounter two things at the same time coming together that don't seem like they fit. You're like, yeah, my marriage. <laughs> uh, you know, but upon further examination, yeah, I'm gonna, maybe further experience, you realize this is really beautiful though, really powerful. You're like, yes, like my marriage. Uh, I'll give you some examples, trivial examples, right? Cincinnati, like chili on noodles, chili on pasta. These two things don't belong until you experience them. You know, like have you ever taken somebody to Skyline or go start from out of town? You know, like somebody that's not from here. I have, people from out of the country even. They're like, what is this? And I'm like, just wait, wait for it. Uh, it's beautiful, right? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, how about, okay, how about this? That doesn't connect with you? All right, last year, Bengals Super Bowl. Yeah, right. <laughs> Two things that don't fit until you experience them. And then you're like, this is beautiful. And it makes perfect sense, right? Um, is it going to happen this year, guys? Yes. Okay, all right. That's all you'll get from me for the rest of the year on football. Uh, here's what I really love. Ready? Uh, Crying tears in the midst of laughter. Where's Chuck? Chuck got me this morning. Uh, it's beautiful, right? Is there, is, there's not much better, not much, there's not much anything more cathartic than laughing so hard that you begin to cry. Two things going together, they don't make, it's like this doesn't, how are tears happening while I'm just you know, belly laughing? It's, but it's then when you experience it, it's beautiful. And it's powerful. Now, something like that is embedded into that text you just read in the, in the really the opening scene of Jesus' story that Mark wants to tell you as he launches his ministry. Did you see it? Um, you could maybe, maybe you wrote it down, you notice, and you're like, man, that is really weird. Jesus comes down from Galilee to see his cousin John to get baptized, and John's preparing the way. And, you know, as predicted and said by the prophet Isaiah a long time ago. And he's trying to tell people like, it's coming, it's coming, the kingdom is here. Get ready, repent and believe all of that. And Jesus comes to him to get baptized. Now that just alone is kind of strange, right? Because it's like, wait, Jesus, he's innocent. Why is he? is, Jesus isn't being baptized to symbolize his death to sin like you and I. He's being baptized because, um, and this is really profound, but Jesus, everything Jesus is doing in part is meant to, so that he identifies with you and your experience like as a human being. And, and it's really important to understand that. We, we, people miss this sometimes or they lose sight of the importance and um, that the gospels are all expressing the accounts of Jesus. They want you to make sure you understand that he's fully human. And we, we miss that sometimes. But you gotta get that. That's really, really important. Um, he's fully divine and he's fully human. And so notice what happens. I'll just read it. Uh, this is chapter one, verse starting in 10 there. He says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now think about that for a second. 
I mean, I just, he comes up out of the water and in some way we don't know exactly how the heavenly reality breaks in. Like the veils, I don't know, does it split? I don't know, does the sky open up? I mean, what is going on? We don't know. And honestly, I don't think they know how to describe it. It doesn't say that the spirit is a dove. It says the spirit descended like a dove. I mean, it's the writers. I mean, Mark is just, I don't really, you know, and I, Mark's being told this story. I mean, so it's like, I don't know exactly what's happening, but it is pretty awesome. And the spirit comes down over Jesus and speaks a word from God, like a direct message from God. And it's the sweetest announcement you could ever imagine, right? Echoing out. And essentially, because beloved, it's not necessarily a word you use every day. And God is announcing, echoing to creation. He's saying, you're my son and I love you. And I take great delight in you. I take joy in you. That's what he's saying to Jesus. But according to Mark, there isn't a glorious party. You know, like if you've been baptized and maybe you've been baptized here, maybe, you know, it's like pictures and hugs, maybe great lunch afterwards. Hopefully you should celebrate that. No, that's for Jesus, is there? He doesn't go enter into this long season of just sweet comfort and peace. No, 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 no. The same spirit. There's not, there's not two different spirits there. It's the same spirit. The same spirit then drives him, Mark says. Matthew uses the word led. Luke also uses that word, I believe. So the spirit drives him out into the lonely, dangerous place of the wilderness for 40 days where there's animals, wild beasts, which is kind of symbolic for saying he's in dangerous territory for 40 days where apparently Satan is prepared to meet with him to start messing with his head and heart and probably even his circumstances, although we don't really know. Mark doesn't really give us many details. I think many of us, and I have done this unintentionally, just kind of conjure up this narrative in our heads. We're familiar with this story. We just assume that Jesus has been baptized and then somehow stumbled into this situation and, or, or, or maybe that Satan has even plotted this out. That's not what you read. It's not there. <laughs> so remove that myth, that idea, uh, because what's actually, what we're actually being told is that God drove the son whom he loves out into the wilderness right after his baptism. What's going on there? Why are those two things that don't seem like they should go together together? What is happening? Well, you're being clued in a little bit with the word tempt. If your, your translation in, in, you're looking at or you have at home or something probably has that word tempt. I think there's some older translations that have test or trial, but in the Greek, parazo, uh, so you say, it, it, it's, it's a word that means to test. It's a, mean, it's a word that means trial or uh, to make proof of something. Now, um, so I think that word in some ways is a, more helpful. Uh, to be fair, I mean, the translators are doing a decent job with it. They're trying to get across what Satan is doing to Jesus. But really the word test is actually gets you into the deeper meaning of what's taking place. And, and I think it fits better uh, and it fits nicely. It links up with wilderness and the number 40. And you might've already guessed that. Like you, you may be already clued in because you've done some Bible work or something like that. And you go, oh, I know where this is going. And, and you would be right. Um, the wilderness, of course, is where Israel, the people of God's special possession, were led out to be tested, tested. I'll just read it to you. This is Deuteronomy 8, verse two. 
God says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see that? So again, none of that, none of what's happening to Jesus after his baptism is an accident. It's not like an unfortunate set of circumstances. Whoopsies. It's like, no, very intentional. God is, is, is playing this out for a second time. Jesus is the all of, all of Israel rolled into one son. That's what he is. And he is the representative sent out to be tested just like the first children of God were. Now, just stop for a second. What's the point of a test? Some of you in school, college maybe, I mean, we've all been to school, hopefully, in some fashion. So you can't get through school without taking a test. My recollection, what's a test for? What does a test do at this most basic level? Tests are meant to expose the authenticity and reliability of something. And when I was growing up, it often exposed that I didn't do homework. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's a great revealer of truth. I don't know anything about this. That's what tests do. Tests, tests reveal truth. It's what they're meant to do. Tests are asking a basic question. Are you real? Right? Are, are, do, do, did you study? <laughs> do you have the skills? Do you have the ability to go further or to continue or to achieve? Therefore, when you put it in that framework, what we're seeing here is Jesus has been what? The two things coming together. Jesus has been assured of God's love. The Father, I love you. You're mine. My chosen anointed son. I take so much joy in you. Go get examined. Go be tested. Go, go be proven out to be real and authentic. That's what he's doing to his son. Now, this is just where it gets fascinating, okay? Like let's, what is Jesus being tested and tempted over? If you're familiar with the story. The, the Deuteronomy passage I just read to you, alluded to it, okay? Um, but God told them it was to know what was in your heart, what's going on in there, and, and, and would you keep, would they keep his commandments or not? But if you really wanna see the, the, the fascinating specifics of this scene and what's going on, you bounce out to Matthew or you bounce out to Luke, who gives more details. Mark is so often just not interested in the details. He's just like, I'm just gonna tell you and then we're gonna move on. Uh, but here's Matthew 4. This is the first encounter with Satan when he goes out into the wilderness, right? So Matthew 4, verse 2 through 3. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, catch it. <laughs> what's, what's the question? If you are the son, if you're the son, Make some bread. Now, that's slimy if you realize what he's doing, but incredibly instructive and insightful for you. 
because you just covered it. You just went over it. What has God, the father, just said to the son? You're my son. And I love you. And I take great joy in you. Now get going. And he goes out and Satan's like, hey, you're hungry. Well, guess what? If you're really the son, why are you so hungry? You see what Satan's doing? He's messing. You're like, oh, he's messing with his hunger. No, no, no. He's using the hunger. He's messing with his identity. He's messing with his status. He's, Satan is challenging Jesus. He, he, if you're really the son of God, make some bread, man. In essence, he's saying, look, Jesus, you say you're the son, right? Isn't that what you say? You, you say you're the holy one, the one from the father. Well, what, what son of God suffers? What son of God wanders around out here being hungry? That's what he's getting at. Satan is saying, look at your circumstances. And this probably will feel, as soon as I say, it feel familiar to you, at least probably should. What he's saying is, is uh, Satan comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, you say you're the son, but look at your circumstances. They stink. You talk a big game about God's love, the Father's love, and how the Father protects, how the Father guides, how the Father saves, the Father delivers, the Father's merciful. You say a lot of things about God. Look at your circumstances. You hate them. Are you sure you're the son whom the Father loves? That's essentially what he's doing. And then um, this is Jesus that goes, I mean, he's just so brilliant. I mean, he's not just love, full of love. He's just brilliant because this is awesome because guess what Jesus's response is? And many of you know it. And so Matthew uh, four, verse four of that chapter, he says, but he answered. So this is how he responds to Satan. It's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written. That's what he said. It is written. Guess where that's from? That's the very next line of Deuteronomy that I just read you. So he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. That's, that, that's the text that he's using. So what he's doing is, Jesus is like, he, he owns, he knows the story, the history so well. He's not just like Bible juking Satan, although he does do that. I mean, he's a total ninja with the Bible verses. But, but what he's really saying to Satan is he's saying, um, look, I, when, when he's attacking his identity, asking him about, the, you know, do you really trust, like all that is in, he's getting in his head, he's getting in his head. And essentially Jesus is like, no, I know the story. I know this tactic. I know what is happening right now. You are meddling. You are messing with my head. My brothers and sisters have encountered this many times and they get it sadly wrong all the time. I won't do that. I'm not gonna do that. In essence, Jesus is saying, no, no, Satan, we don't live by eating bread uh, alone. Now, this is where many of us, I think we think, oh, what Jesus is saying is we don't, we don't live by bread, we live by reading our Bibles. That's not what he's saying. <laughs> I don't think that's what he's saying. Try that. 
you'll starve. Jesus clearly knows we need bread. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, um, you, you live by bread, yes, but really you're flourishing, you're thriving. What it means to really live means to know what God says about you. That's what he's saying. That what it means to really live is to, to say, he's saying my life, my identity, my purpose will not be determined by my circumstances. That's what it means to live. To, to live less than, to live in such a way where you're not truly being what God wants of you is to define your reality by your circumstances. And Jesus is saying, I won't do that. My circumstances might be awful, but I will work in my mind and I will try to believe and trust and hold on to and cling to what the Father has said about me and make that my reality. Amen. That's my reality. It's deeper than my hunger. It's deeper than my pain. It's deeper than my suffering, all of it. I must trust in what he says. I will trust that he came down and he spoke this word over me. And that's truth above everything else. Now, I don't have time to unpack the other temptations. They're fantastic. Um, but I'll just say this in Matthew, the very next one will be another attack on his identity as a son. Well, if you are a son, well, let's talk about Bible verses, and Jesus, which is a total mistake because Jesus knows his Bible better. But eventually, I'll just say this, and it, it all ends with Jesus doing what? Jesus will finally just say, be gone, be gone. Are we done here? This will not work. So why, again, why do we put, why put the two together? Why do we have the story? Let's reflect on it just as we, you know, round this out here. A couple things, one. For, for one, Jesus isn't just fully, the fully human son. He's, he's the son who fully passes the test. And, and you can never, ever, ever, ever miss that or forget that. That he, he fully suffers and he does it perfectly in love, submission to the father. He was humbled, he was pained, but he was proven obedient. He learned his obedience through what he suffered. That's what the Bible says. And he will continue to show throughout you know, the rest of the story as we read it and unpack it, this, the rest of this winter into the spring, he'll continue to show how loyal and faithful he is to his heavenly father. That you'll just see it over and over and over again. He won't deviate. He will be, he will be obedient and submissive to his father all the way to the bloody end literally. And, and what, what, what you have to understand about that is, given everything we just have said, is what you realize is Jesus never cheats the process. Like Jesus will never step outside of his humanity to lessen his suffering. You realize that? I try to cheat all the time, like in little ways, like not on my wife. <laughs> But in, in little ways, I try to cheat the process. I try to, I try to find the path of least resistance to get out, you know, I mean, just I, I, any way I can, because suffering is hard and it, it, trials are hard and testing is hard and Jesus will never do that. And he has all of that power, right? And yet he doesn't. 
He never somehow sheds his humanity. He takes it on, everything that comes with it. He'll never flex his position of authority to somehow avoid suffering. And this testing moment will really prove him to be the victor. You know, that's the thing. One of the things you really don't notice is, I mean, yes, for the rest of the story, he will, he'll encounter more horrible things and evil will not quit. But this really marks a moment of victory for Jesus. I can, you know, one of the ways you just see it is in Mark, at least, the very first encounter, like miracle that he does in Mark is, is what? Casting out a demon. And what's so fascinating about that is when they encounter him, just right after this scene, when be gone, get out of here. And then it's like, here's what, they, this, here's what the unclean spirits say to Jesus in Mark 1, 24. What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus says, shut up. Be silent and get out of here. That's someone who has authority. That's someone who has been out in the wilderness and encountered evil and won. And he tells demons what to do. And they know. This is very orthodox of the demons. They know who he is. You're the holy one. I mean, the translation of this is that the demons are saying to him, we heard about you. We heard what happened out there. We know what you're like and we know that you're real. You've been tested and proven. Your metal has been tested and you've passed and we're scared. Now, I would just say this, whatever you think of Jesus, Please remember that he faced human realities of being tested and tried. He was pushed to his utter limits. He was examined in every way, but he has remained grounded, grounded in the Father's love for him and his love for the Father. It's not like Jesus got a free pass out of the broken conditions of this world. So this is why the New Testament is is so, um, it emphasizes understanding that you can go to Jesus and Jesus knows exactly what you're experiencing. He wasn't somehow like, you know, immune to that process, but he has passed the test. So, and the second thing I think we should reflect on is this, that the journey Jesus takes is the journey that you who want God has to take. I think that that in part is why we have the story. All those who want God must take the same journey that Jesus takes. Realize that all believers who come to Jesus as Lord, who say, I want your victory in my place. That's what you're doing to become a Christian. You're saying, I want your victory in place of my failure, right? That's the idea. Anyone who says that, who comes to, you get to be a child of God. The mission of Jesus isn't just to prove his obedience, as I've just described. It's it's to bring you into the same loving relationship. And so what makes the gospel so amazing, the good news, right? The beginning, the first line of this text is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the beginning of the wonderful news to you. Here's how it is. Here's how it starts, right? The the gospel is amazing news because what God says and feels toward Jesus, he says and feels towards you. That's why it's good news. What he says to the son, Jesus, is what he says to you. 
So a good exercise for you, especially if you're new to this stuff, if you're new to the gospel, would just be insert your name in the verse we read a little bit earlier. Just insert your name there and then read it to yourself repeatedly. This, this thing, I, I can't stress enough, this can be really difficult to believe for us. Just sit with it for a little bit. I love you. I take great joy in you. That's what God says to you in Christ. Say it over and over and over again. And, and it, it's a struggle for us to believe because of, and maybe more for some than others, depending on your life. I think it's just difficult for everybody in some way or another. It's just difficult because of life failures. You know, you rack them up over time and you're like, well, yeah, he kind of loves me, but it's like, eh. It's a struggle for us because so many of us didn't have earthly parents that spoke this way. You know, like a lot of us just did, we had, we didn't have um, earthly parents that had the emotional and lexical courage to look us in the eye on a regular basis and say, you know, I just, there's no reason for this right now. I just want to tell you that I love you. And I, I just find that I take all my joy in you. And you didn't have a mom or you didn't have a dad that just said it frequently enough to you. And you don't even know the degree to which that's framing your existence in this world. But God is not like your earthly mom or your earthly dad. He's different, very, very different. And it will take the rest of your life to try to like really figure that out and make it real to you. And for the skeptics thinking, well, okay, he, he, he says that to Jesus, but not me. I don't know where this guy keeps thinking that he says it to me. He's messing with the text. Well, allow me to spoil the story a little bit and jump ahead because this is at the end. This is John 17, 22 through 23. This is Jesus at the end of his life. The end of his, you know, right before he's gonna be taken and crucified. This is John 17, 22 through 23. This is Jesus's words in his prayer to the Father. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one. What's it say? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Words right out of his mouth. This is what he says. I have been sent so that they will know that the same way you love me is the way you love them. So you, <laughs> your conscience, whatever it is going on in you, the guilty conscience, the shame conscience, whatever is conjuring up in you all the time, whatever voices keep flooding in all the time, you're dirty, you're this, you're wrong, you're no good. This is what my mom said. This is what my dad said. This is what my boyfriend said. This is what my girlfriend said. This is what my spouse has said. This is what my boss has said. This is what that nasty family member that did this to me has said. What I don't care what it is that you hear. You hear voices all the time. This is the primary voice that you have to hear. This is why Jesus has come. The same way that God feels, the Father feels about Jesus, he feels about you. But I've done, but he loves you. It's not like he doesn't know what you've done. It's just that in spite of it, he loves you because he sees Christ. He doesn't see the things that we've done anymore because of Christ. In Christ, God looks at you and sees a son or a daughter whom he loves and takes great delight in. 
And that's crucial. You have to hold on to that. You have to cling to that, to that kind of love because this does not mean that you have a, a life free of pain or wilderness. That's what we're getting at here. You will have a life of testing. You might be in one right now. Those whom he loves, he disciplines. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us up front. Jesus himself would say, in this world, you're gonna have trouble. Take heart, take courage, I've overcome it. But make no mistake, in the world, you're gonna have a hard time. But here's the thing. (laughs) Why do we have the two things together? Because... Discipline isn't punishment from God. It's, the, it's not the sign of his disappointment. It's a sign of his preparation. Is God the Father mad at Jesus? Is God the Father disappointed in Jesus? Get out in the wilderness. No, he's perfectly pleased and delighted in Jesus, and yet he sends him out. And I think we get this so twisted sometimes in the midst of our circumstances. When they get hard, they get confusing, they get uncertain. We're, we're struck down, we're just, we're, we're suffering at times, we're depressed at times, we feel hopeless at times, and we feel the loss and we think, why God, why, are you mad at me? Look at Jesus, is he mad at Jesus? He's not mad at Jesus, and he's not mad at you. He's not mad at you. Are there trials? Yes. But understand that the trial, the testing, what it is, is he's forging and solidifying your identity as one who is beloved, regardless of circumstances and struggles. He's making it more real to you. And, 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 and the realness of that sometimes and very often and most of the time has to happen in the trials. It's not on the sunny side. The wilderness places God allows in our lives are meant to push us, not not to push us out of his love, but to push us deeper into his love and into his presence because we cling to him. They're meant to expose for our own good how much deeper we can go in our reliance on him. It's like when you go through trials, you're meant to experience and be exposed and realize, I didn't know that there was deeper depths that I could go in terms of reliance. I didn't know that I could through gritted teeth cling to him and say, please deliver me. I can't do this anymore. I didn't know I could get that vulnerable. Whenever you're in a rough patch, uh, you might be in one right now, whether it's a family crisis, a faith crisis, a sickness or a financial crisis, whenever you're in a rough patch, no matter what the trial is, we're essentially wrestling with the same fundamental question that Jesus was being asked which is this. I don't, I don't care what the trial is. You're being asked this in the trial. What are you doing with the Father's love? So you got a bill that you can't pay. You got a sickness that's just worn you down. You got a family dynamic, a spouse dynamic, a kid dynamic that is wearing you down. And what you are essentially being asked is, what are you doing with the Father's love right now? The question is not, are you being good enough? Are you behaving well enough? Get that question out of your head. The question is, do you, what do you think about God's love over you right now? That's the fundamental question. That's the identity question. That's the ultimate question that Satan is meddling and getting into your head, into your heart and messing with. Am I trusting in it? Am I clinging to it? If you're wanting to know how you work this stuff out, I think you primarily wrestle with this 
in prayer, in prayer. You go to God as often as you can and you don't offer up your sophisticated, polished self. You go to him and you say, Jesus, and this is important. This is something I've been thinking about really for weeks. Jesus, you know what this is like. Just take that line, steal it, write it down in your journal or write it down on a post-it and just put it there and remember to say it in prayer. Whenever you're struggling and you hit a rough patch, say this, Jesus, you know what this is like. You know what it's like to, to be in a place where you're hurting. You're not somehow outside of the lines here. You know this. You know what I feel. Deliver me. You can, you can get through it. You've shown that you can get through it. I can. Deliver me. You're, you're told to pray that way. That's how you work this out. If you don't pray in the trials of your life, in essence, you're trying to take on the temptations of evil in your own power. That's what you're doing all the time, which isn't just foolish, it's totally unnecessary. I mean, think about the Jesus prayer. We pray it every week, we prayed it this morning. We, we pray the prayer that Jesus told us to pray. And in that prayer, what do we say at the very end of it? Father, lead us not, what? Into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What are you saying when you say that? So I should say it every day. What are you saying? You're saying, Father, don't lead me into the wilderness. Don't do it. I, I don't know how I will respond there. But if you do, you have to deliver me. Basically, I can't. I can't get through it on my own. I will fail the test. If you're gonna lead me there, you, you have to deliver me from evil. What you're praying, the reason why Jesus told us to pray that way is you're, we're offering up our weakness, not our strength. We're offering up our not so confident faith. We're offering up our sense of like, hey, I don't know really what will happen to me. I can be really, really weak. Please deliver me. And, and this is what God expects of us. Our weakness, just, just be honest in that weakness. That's all he needs and wants of us. Don't lead us there. This is the prayer of submission. This is true humility. This is trusting in your identity as a son and a daughter. That's why he loves it. He's so pleased with you. When you go to him in your weakness and say, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I can't do it. So the next time you're in a, a, a confusing or, or hard situation that feels like it's testing your heart and your beliefs about God and the life he wants for you, remember this. The tried and I think endlessly insane question of why. Anybody done that before? You get in a situation, you get stuck in a spot and the question that's ruminating in your head is why is this happening to me, God? I think is an immense, it's a legitimate question, but an immensely unhelpful one. You will not worry your way to peace. You won't. That's insane. If I worry and wonder about why long enough, I'll eventually feel better. How's it going? It never works. The question you have to learn to ask of yourself and in prayer, when you find yourself in a tough spot, is this, um, instead of why is this happening to, God, to me, God? Instead, 
I think what the, the question that the story beckons us to is, God, I'm struggling. God, I feel weak. What does it mean for me to be faithful here? I, I, I don't know the reason. I don't know if you'll ever tell me the reason why I'm in the wilderness right now. I don't know if this will ever make sense for me, but quite frankly, what I'm primarily concerned with is in spite of the hell that I face right now, what does it mean for me to be faithful in this situation? That's the question that we should be asking in prayer. Show me, teach me, lead me to faithfulness right now. And then think it through and watch the spirit move. God doesn't drive us out to the wilderness to see if we'll be superhuman. He drives us out there to make us weak so that we'll submit our whole lives to him, his love and his power. And so as we come to the table, as we come to this time of communion, as we come to the Lord's Supper, this bread, this cup reminds us that we, that we, we, we live by bread. <laughs> we, just, we do. We, we do live by bread, but not by it alone. We need the voice of God, the, smith, the still small voice telling us over and over that we're loved, that you are loved in Christ. And so... Uh, we remember, we reflect, and we proclaim every week the same thing that Jesus told us to remember and to proclaim when he was with his disciples, the night he was betrayed, the last night before he's taken to be crucified, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken and given to you. And he took the cup of wine after giving thanks. And he said, this is the new covenant, my blood, the new promise. I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. That's what you have. And so you take it. And so as you take time this morning, before you take communion, just bow your head and pray and think through what are the voices? What are the voices? And it might take a minute, two minutes, five minutes, I don't know, for you to conjure up and realize what are the voices that are getting in. And, and, and then when you're ready, come up and take part. And when, as you take the bread and you dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits, that you, what you're saying is, is what matters more, the louder voice I need to hear right now is that Jesus secured the love from the Father. I am loved. If you'll just say that as you take communion this morning, I am loved. And, and here's the thing, friends, and this is it. And then we're gonna pray. When you know that, this is what I would encourage you to remember. If you know how loved you are by God, you don't have to do the thing that you've been tempted to do. You don't have to hate that person. You don't have to refuse forgiveness. You don't have to talk bad about this person. You don't have to give up. You don't have to shame yourself. You don't have to shame them. You don't have to hide. Like whatever it is that Satan is messing with you right now, like you don't have to do that and cheat the process. If you know how loved you are, if you know how loved you are, then you can do anything in Christ who strengthens you, okay? So let's bow our heads and pray this morning. And I just wanna read this, just, just keep your eyes closed and just hear this over you. This is from Henry now, and I just think it's so beautiful. Many voices ask for our attention. There's a voice that says, prove that you are a good person. Another voice says, you'd better be ashamed of yourself. 
there also is a voice that says, nobody really cares about you. And one says, be sure to become successful, popular, and powerful. But underneath all these often very noisy voices is a still small voice that says, you are my beloved. My favor rests on you. That's the voice we need most of all to hear. To hear that voice, however, requires special effort. It requires solitude, silence, and a strong determination to listen. That's what prayer is. It is listening to the voice that calls us my beloved. Father, we thank you and we praise you that your son was sent out into the wilderness and passed, that he has defeated Satan. And although evil still kicks at us and stabs at us and messes with our heads and gets in our hearts, Father, we will prevail because your son has prevailed. May we take part in communion and remember it today that we are loved, that we are delighted in because of what your son has done. And that is such good news for me. That is such good news for many of us here in this room who need to remember it. May we sing out this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen.